Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Greatest Games podcast brought to you by The Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, opposite me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today is Daniel Edwards, an Argentina-based football journalist and contributor to Goal, Bleacher Report and the English language Argentine football podcast, Hand of Pod, among others. Daniel, pleasure to have you with us. Hi Marcus, hi John, thanks for the invitation, happy to be here. <laughs> Lovely, all the way from Argentina. All the way. Uh, well, Today, we're going back to the 1967 Intercontinental Cup played between the winners of the Copa Libertadores that year, Racing Club, and the then European champions, of course, that year, Celtic, Daniel. I mean, this is quite quite the game or set of games, should I say, but over to you. Why have you chosen this match? I think it's a very interesting match, obviously, living in Argentina. I specialise in, in South America and Argentine football. And and I'm British, so this was really the first uh, official game, let's say, between a British side and uh, and an Argentine side. Prior to this, there were um, there were many kind of South American tours that that various English teams did, and and also Argentine clubs would come over to Europe and play British sides. But kind of moving into modern football when. You already have established the, the European Cup, the Copa Libertadores, of course, uh, the World Cup. Um, it just seems kind of a landmark game because I think as well, um, kind of following on as it did so soon after um, uh, the 1966 World Cup, uh, Argentina, England, and uh, and of course, Sir Ralph Ramsey's Notorious Animals um insult to the Argentine teams. Uh, this game and the uh, ones that followed it, the, the Estudiantes, Manchester United game that followed um, the following year, I think they really did help to, to kind of colour British fans' opinions of, of Argentine football, Argentine football teams, their fans, and kind of create a narrative which, which in some respects has persisted even, even to today, certainly through... Uh, kind of the 1980s, 1990s, uh, subsequent um, into the Continental Cup games, World Cup games, and, and meetings between the, the two countries. So, so kind of what I set out to do, um, kind of when I started studying this match, because uh, quite a few years ago now, um, I wrote about it for for John for um, for the Blizzard. Uh, what I looked to do was really kind of um, look into the game, not. Just take the easy stereotypes, the Battle of Montevideo, flying fists, dirty Argentines, and um, and Celtic being being robbed of this trophy, this you know legendary Celtic team under Jock Singh. Kind of look at the games and see is it is that actually the case, or or is there a little mm-hmm. bit more to this story? Sure. Well, we, we, well, and we'll get on to that, Daniel, because there's an awful lot to talk about here. There's a little bit of admin to get out of the way, ladies and gentlemen, so I'll do that now. So this game, as I say, the winners of the Copa de Libertadores and, and, the, and the European Cup, it was a two-legged affair, but the tie wouldn't be settled on aggregate or indeed away goals. They used a points system, perhaps uh, created by an Australian, who knows, uh, with two points being awarded for a win, one point for a draw, and no points for a loss. So... A team could win 1-0 in the home leg and then lose 9-0 in the second leg. But that would mean both teams were tied on points and thus a one-legged playoff uh, match would be required to to be played in a neutral country. So 
quite an intriguing approach to proceedings, Jonathan. Um, and this was perhaps a match that, that British football fans were sort of quite unaware of, you know, Celtic being the first British side and, and, and off the top of my head, perhaps the first non-sort of Latin or Southern European side to win the European Cup. So they went into the first leg at home to play this side, uh, uh, Racing Club from from Argentina. Quite an exotic affair, I would imagine. And and in those days, uh, you didn't know quite what to expect. But but as Daniel said, there was those Alf Ramsey comments uh, during the 1966 sorry, uh, World Cup that uh, perhaps skewed people's uh, opinions on, on Argentinian footballers. But the game itself was, was quite explosive. I mean, you've written as well in, in Angels with Dirty Faces, your book on the history of Argentinian football, about this tie. Uh, immediate thoughts when this game leaps to mind? <laughs> well, I mean, Dan's right. It's a lot more nuanced than than just kind of dirty argies, which I think is the kind of the the easy way of looking at it. And I think mm. the context of 66 is important that um, there's very little sort of distinction made between England, Scotland, Britain in South America as a whole. And it, this was sort of seen as being against the same enemy. Um but it's also, I don't think this these games really were out of the ordinary for certainly international fixtures involving South American clubs. You know, if you talk to people who played in, in the early Libertadores games, they were all horrifically violent. You know, they were all <laughs> battles. Um, and, you know, uh, Rassing would travel around with a squad of 40 boxers to protect them, uh, who they pretended <laughs> were photographers. So... Uh, you know, and, and, and you, you talk to people who played for them or, um, or yeah, people who played for, for Boca when they, they, they played the games against Santos. And they talked about how you, you go to the away game and you just knew for, for three or four days you were there, you were under siege and you, you needed the protection. Um, so I, 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 as with all the, the sort of uh, the, the most combustible European against South American clashes, over you know the whole course of football history, and you have know, started playing each other what hundred and hundred and fifteen years ago. The first tours went went over, mm. and it's it's just cultures that don't understand each other um, suddenly finding points of friction and that exploding into something far greater than ever needs to be. But you know, wrestling were conditioned that when you went abroad, as soon as you step on a plane, you're going into the unknown, and the unknown's probably pretty dangerous and pretty unpleasant. Mm. Uh, Daniel, how did how did Racing find it then when they went to Glasgow for the first leg? They would lose one nil. Billy McNeil scored the goal. I mean, there was a lot of interest in the game, a lot of revenue generated as well. There was there was huge interest, certainly from uh, you know a Celtic point of view. I'm sure from a Racing point of view as well. Um, how did they find it when they when they arrived in Glasgow and and how they were greeted by the press and, and the locals? Yeah, absolutely. There was huge interest in the game. In fact. Um... Uh, prior to the final Celtic changed the venue they didn't play at, at Parkhead they changed it to Handon Park because they needed the extra capacity and mm-hmm. and Handon Park was was full to the brim of of Celtic fans of course I think if I remember rightly Racing had taken very few um, fans along with them possibly only a hundred um, but the sense I get is uh, Racing were were very very pleased with the um, the reception they received in in Scotland, they um, uh, they had a lot of respect for for the Celtic team that comes through in all of the testimonies I've written. They they were aware that Celtic were were a very strong club, 
a very a very good team that um, kind of suffered no falls. Um, so there was definitely the sense that they were they were in for a, a very difficult match, and and it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be easy by by any means. And yeah, that first match, um, you can see that Racing, who who were known in in Argentina for for playing very fluid attacking football, um, possibly taking into account uh, that kind of that kind of reputation that Celtic had as well for all-out attack, uh, just really taking games by the throat. They they sat back. They tried to, um, to um, probably just take the draw because, as we were talking about um, just now with with this format, if you grab the draw away, then you were you had a massive advantage uh, going into your home game because all you needed was was any kind of win and. And uh, and that's it. Well, the home leg was very important back in the home leg was very important back in those days, as as you say. Um, I mean, the, the some of the reports suggest that you know Racing they very much set up to defend and 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 take the draw and and this is where Daniel that perhaps your um, findings from a from a British point of view are quite are quite interesting and important because again you you mentioned right at the start of this it's it's. It's tempting to take the easy way out of this, and I'd and I'd love your, your sort of opinions, or, or perhaps the opinions of Racing, because one can immediately say here that Racing turned up, they tried to, they defended in numbers at any cost, they time wasted, they were were committing cynical fouls all the time, breaking up the play. The Celtic players kept going on. You know, you watch the, the former Celtic players at the time in a little documentary you find on YouTube and so on. They moan about the spitting and the kicking and the headbutting. You know, they said that they'd never experienced anything like this before. And so the temptation is to just think, well, poor old Celtic, you know, turned up and just tried to play a game of football. And this side from Argentina turned up to try and spoil the game of football at every given opportunity. Is is that how Racing see it as well? No, of course. Uh, I think you're always going to have the case where in almost any game, the winners are gracious and think, oh yeah, we won probably because we were the better team on balance and and the team that loses will tend to look at specific moments where, where they feel hard done by, right? That's, that's human nature. Um, but Racing, no, uh, that Racing team, you know, a product of the 1960s in Argentine football, which was, as John mentioned, an extremely uncompromising era, um, with with kind of violent violent play tolerated to an extent where it obviously wouldn't be now, and and probably wasn't so much in Europe. Um, but uh, from what I've seen, the Racing players themselves they recognise that um, they were a long way from home very uh, little time to, to prepare and and they went out to, to spoil uh, Juan Carlos Rulli who was one of the one of the real hard men in the in the racing team um, he admitted I saw um, a documentary on on Fox uh, he just came out and said you know almost laughing the Scots they were tough guys and I'm not going to lie to you we wanted to slow him down so um, and his... Well, he commits one foul on Jimmy Johnson, which is absolutely horrific. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy Johnson, who's kind of a classic sort of little jinking Scottish winger, 
And really, yeah. really, he's not tall, actually, is he? I, I met him. I met him kind of randomly. And, well, I wasn't wasn't random. I was talking to Umberto Mascio, who who uh, played on the left of midfield in this game, and um, he came in to see Mascio at the end of this marathon sort of four hour interview. Like Mascio just wouldn't let me leave. He just kind of had more and more anecdotes to tell me. And really came in, and we got another hour out of Ruli as well. Um, but that foul on Johnson is just like okay, that's a that, that's that's just a red like now in in any era of football. Well, that's a horrific challenge. Yeah. But I mean, I think generally that that first game wasn't too controversial. I mean, you know, the uh, the Racing team find themselves uh, they they fly to Rio, then fly I think Rio to Madrid, Madrid to London, London to Glasgow, and on the London to Glasgow leg. Who's on their plane but Sean Connery? Sean Connery, yeah. Uh, one, of, and they... one of the many famous uh, Racing fans that, that <laughs> Is he still live in Argentina? <laughs> he was living there for a while, wasn't he? So he Not um to my knowledge, no. So he because he's a Rangers fan. And yeah, was it was a very good footballer himself. He played for Bonnie Rig Rose, mm. famously. He um you know, he he decides he's he'll turn up in the dressing room before kickoff to kind of try and motivate them, <laughs> which is just the most extraordinary. You know, he's he's at the time he's playing James Bond. He's absolutely yeah. at the peak of his fame, um, <laughs> turning up in the dressing room at Hamden to kind of whip up the <laughs> wrestling side. <laughs> but I um, I remember Chango Cardenas who, who eventually scores the winner. But he was a what was he seven uh, nineteen at the time in this game? He was a kid at this playing centre forward. Nineteen twenty, yeah, very. Um... And he, he, he said that they were actually treated really, really well. And the only sort of hostility they felt was when the anthems were played before kickoff, the Argentinian anthem was whistled. But he said, you know, compared to Libertadores games, this is like, mm. you know, mm. the red carpet and kind of... And, and then the game itself, there's, there's that foul. And then there's this little sort of like backwards headbutt by um, oh, yeah. Martin on, on Bertie Old. Um, but apart from that, it's a it's a... It's a competitive game, but it's not sort of a massively aggressive game. We wouldn't be talking about it now if that was the only game that had been played. Put it that put it that way. Yeah, if it had ended there, I think that would have been that would have been the end of the story. Um, I loved uh, Rulli's definition. Is in Spanish, it comes out as uh, un partido de patadura, which literally would be of hard feet, <laughs> and that's probably as as decent a definition as you can, guys. Going in strong, taking no prisoners, and and yeah, making themselves felt. I think um, I'll be absolutely astounded if, in Racing's mind, they weren't thinking of you know at least if they couldn't win in Glasgow, at least putting down a marker. So when Celtic do get on the plane to Buenos Aires, that would be in the back of their mind, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the black eye to Billy McNeil and, and a few other choice injuries might have, have done that as well. But of course, back in those days, I suppose that wasn't so uncommon uh, in, in football matches. But we'll get on to the second leg where, where you know, Celtic turn up um, to Argentina. And uh, Billy McNeil himself said, well, a lot of the Celtic players said that, you know, they were fairly well welcomed uh, by the locals. And it, that wasn't really, there was no real problem there as far as I understand it. But he said... The welcome when they got to the stadium, um, McNeil described it as nothing short of horrific. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, you know, Manchester City found that out when they went to Anfield. You know, so let's not be too perhaps European about this, Jonathan. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, uh, the the goal Billy McNeil scored, uh, Rassing were or certainly Mashiel was furious about it. Not not about mm-hmm. the you know the, anything to do with the scoring of the goal. But the goal in the first leg in the, in the first leg, which you know, yeah, win one nil. And um, 
they'd yeah they they worked on set plays a lot because they knew Celtic were you know obviously when you've got uh, Billy McNeil and you've got John Clark you're going to be good in the air and and Coco Basile just didn't pick him up so Mascia was still kind of you know 45 years later when I spoke to him was still raging about <laughs> Basile failing to pick him up but then what's what's interesting is Billy McNeil's reaction is and yeah he was a very sort of calm authoritative leader uh but he actually has a go at Basile as he scores. So he taunts him after scoring, which is very unlike him. So something was clearly going off, but it was it was far less than, than would happen. Yeah. And in in that second leg, uh, which, you know, Racing won 2-1. I mean, this was when the kind of the, the tempo was really raced quite a lot in this fixture. Ronnie Simpson in goal for Celtic, he was struck by an object thrown by the crowd and and would be replaced by the sub-keeper. I think that was before even kickoff. You know, John Fallon went in goal. Um, there was a moment, uh, Daniel, am I right in saying, when Tommy Gemmell, he scored a penalty for Celtic in that game. And this was despite local sort of photographers and journalists encroaching on the pitch, trying to put him off as he's taking the kick. Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, <laughs> uh, when Ronnie Simpson's failed before the game, uh, if you look at the, the racing ground even now, uh, you'll see it's a big wide bowl you've got uh, between the pitch and the, um, and the you know twenty foot um, crash th- crash fences. You've got a moat, and then from the from the other side of the fence to the stands, you've probably got another thirty feet. So it's very difficult to see how someone would have thrown a coin or or some sort of object from that far to do damage the. The prevailing theory these days was is that it was in fact one of the photographers and not a fan oh, right. that took him out. Um, well, there's, there's all kinds of controversies about this because you know, uh, yeah, there's, there's some kind of some people say, "Oh, it must have been fired using a catapult." But again, how do you? They had like protective net up, so how do you get through the net? Yeah. So yeah, yeah mesh, photographer yeah. seems the most likely thing. But Django Cardenas was sort of like, "Well, yeah, he got hit in the face by something and he was bleeding, but it wasn't like you needed stitches. What was wrong with him? Why didn't he just play on?" In fact, Fallon says afterwards um, that um, that he could have played, that Ronnie Simpson could have played, but uh, Jock Steen uh, insisted that Fallon goes in. And he suggested, was Jock already kind of getting his excuses in early? He kind of saw how this game was going, which, which I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, and going back to general for a second, uh, the penalty is an interesting one. It's Jimmy Johnson who just tears away um, after an error. In the, in the Racing backline, uh, Agustin Cejas, uh, the Racing goalkeeper, has really no choice but to, uh, but to take him down. Uh, photographers are crowded around behind the goal. Jemal fires it, fires it home without many problems. And then something happens, which I think is, is fantastic. Um, I was watching just recently um, kind of the grainy live, um, live broadcast of this game. And as soon as the goal goes in, uh, the photographers actually run onto the pitch to get some to get some action shots. And the commentator who's talking to you, he's actually behind the goal, and he comes onto the pitch to, to have a chat with Sechas. He says, "Sechas, <laughs> uh, oh, bad luck, mate. Uh, what are you thinking?" And Sechas, you know, really not wanting to speak much. Yeah, I'll, you know, I decided to go to my right, but but I couldn't quite make it. Uh, all right, better luck next time. And and wanders off again, goes back to the, <laughs> to the commentator. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's soccer aid esque in this country, that kind of mm. thing. Um, my goodness. Well, okay, gentlemen, we, we, let's have a quick break because there's so much to talk about here. And, and we do have the, um, 
the important sort of third leg, if you like, or, or playoff to, um, to, to chat through. So let's have a quick break. Welcome back to Greatest Games, everybody. Now, so uh, after the end of the second leg, it was it was two two, of course, but, it, but but aggregate didn't matter. So it was it was it was a draw on points, two uh, two on points. Um, and I should also say, but, but by the way, just to kind of ramp it up a bit more, after the match, as as far as I understand it, Daniel, um, Celtic dressing room was invaded by Argentinian fans. Uh, 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 as well, so there was there was a bit of unsavoury scenes there, and there were some Uruguayan fans who had travelled to Buenos Aires to support Celtic uh, as well. So there was there was a bit of crowd trouble, and Jockstein said he didn't want to play the third match; he just wanted to go home. But of course, they needed to go to a neutral country, which was Uruguay, to play that uh, to to play that playoff match. Yeah, after the the second game as well, you can see it in the in the broadcast as a. A pitch invasion. Um, the Racing the Racing players are mobbed uh, by fans, and one of them is wearing kind of a very sixties um, open collar, you know, open wide collar shirt. Uh, just starts accosting Jimmy Johnston and and trying to rip the shirt from his back. And Johnston just looks so pissed off. I mean, he was. I mean, we'll probably talk about this a bit more. Talking about this third game, um, what I found with the second game was. That it wasn't like with the first leg. It wasn't dirty per se. It was hard. It was um, there were a lot of big hits from from both teams. Like none of neither of the two teams held back. But Jimmy Johnston in particular, you can see he was he was identified as the danger man uh, by Racing. Uh, kind of just a fantastic dribbler, so good on the ball, uh, and they went out to to put him off his stride. Um, he was hit throughout the game. I think at, right at the start of the the first half, after after Racing's second goal, there is a criminal pit up, but criminal tackle from Roberto Perfumo, the legendary Argentine defender, and almost takes uh, Johnson's leg. You know, he almost amputates his legs. Um, and then you had this thing after after the game, uh, and Johnston just looked so put out, so. Like he'd rather be anywhere else in the world, and and you get the feeling after that second game that that was the feeling that Celtic players had. They they really didn't want a third match. I think mm-hmm. in the end um, they accepted because it was going to leave a lot of money for the club, and you know they didn't want to let the 130, 140 so uh, Celtic fans who had travelled to South America with them down. Um, but but yeah, Jockstein. Uh, once he had agreed, he decided that um, that Celtic would give as much as they're forced to take. Uh, was his were his words? Um, they weren't look. They weren't going to look for trouble in Montevideo, but uh, if there was any more violent play, uh, they weren't going to they weren't going to stay in their shells. Yeah, Jonathan, what, what, going into this into this sort of playoff match, you know, there was obviously tensions were running high and and, and so on. There was chat that the Paraguayan referee stopped the match after 23 minutes to, to say to both captains look you, you know players will be sent off should all this foul play not stop I mean it, reading about it it does seem to be an absolute you know shambles oh yeah I, I, I think the um, the choice of venue was 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 really not a good one I mean obviously the Centenario is one of the great iconic stadiums but the fact that Racing had um they beaten Nacional of Uruguay uh, in the Libertadores final. 
So weirdly, both teams, you, you know, you talk to players in both teams, and they both say, oh, the, the crowd was against us. You know, the, the Racing think the Uruguayan crowd were against them because, well, A, because of Uruguay-Argentinian relations, but specifically because Nacional had been beaten by this Racing side. Um, but Celtic are obsessed by this idea that, oh, you know, all these South Americans all hated us. And there's this argument as well, or not an argument, this sort of disagreement, that both both teams carried out Uruguayan flags to try and curry favour with the locals. <laughs> and uh, Chango Cardenas said, you know, when, when Celtic took out the Uruguayan flag, they all cheered. When we took it out, they booed us anyway. But then Billy McNeil said, well, they had a bigger flag than us, so they got a bigger cheer, so that, that set the crowd against us even more. And it, so both sides clearly felt the, the atmosphere was generally hostile. Um, and clearly, that you know, the, the, whatever the feelings of Uruguayans, so there were sort of 20,000 Racing fans had gone over. There's no distance between Mon- uh, Buenos Aires and Montevideo. So I think Moses would say around about 20,000 Racing fans there. So at least they have sort of a, a core support. But yeah, those, that first quarter of the game, it, it's, there's just sort of little fights breaking out all over the place, terrible tackles. And I guess the ref knew he was losing control. So supposedly he he called the two captains over, um, Martin and, and uh, Billy McNeil, and said, look, if this goes off again, I'm just going to send off a player from each side. And for some reason, he he picked, well, Ruley, I can see why he picked Ruley, uh, but he picked Bertie Old, who is just sort of, you know, a, a, of all the people on the pitch, arguably the most placid. Yeah, poor old Bertie. <laughs> but, you know, um, they're, they're, he's a designated scapegoat. If, 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 if something goes off again and of course it did go off again yeah well it would continue to do so for for the rest of the game really Daniel I mean when what you know one can talk about it's often when Celtic talk about this as you say that they feel more victimized Um, however some of their players do look back on this and think oh we let ourselves down but there's still a narrative of oh we let ourselves down by going down to Racing's level do you think that's fair um, I would contest that. As I say, I watched mm. the second leg in full and, and it's a hard game, but but Racing weren't particularly more guilty, I, I don't think, of foul play than Celtic. Um, you know, their speciality were, um, were these tactical fouls, um, these niggling fouls, kind of stepping on, stepping on in steps, taking, you know, clipping someone's heels, their knee into the fire, these kind of things. Um Kind of very, you know, more than than violent, violent. This kind of psychological violence, if if you know what I mean, just kind of chipping away at at the opponent's um, patience, and and they provoke Celtic into into losing their heads uh, while they mm-hmm. kept relatively relatively calm. You might not like it as um, as a strategy, um, you know, it's not beautiful football or or anything like that, but. I'd say uh, what you see throughout the what throughout the games is is Racing are kind of are much more committed to to keeping the ball on the floor. Their um, their kind of their technique is is fantastic mm-hmm. across the pitch. I saw you know you have guys like Coco Basile who was as hard a centre half as they come um, chipping over. Um, I think it was uh, Mur- Murdoch's head with uh, with a sombrero. And just carrying on running, um, Umberto Maschio, who was a fantastically um, stylish player um, and just had so much ability on the ball. And I think that as well kind of chipped away at the, 
at the Celtic nerves. They went kind of long periods in, in all of the games, especially the last two, without seeing the ball, and, and they were almost chasing shadows. Um, and, yeah, and, and of course, when, when, it all does, when hell does break loose in, in Montevideo, Surprise, surprise, the, the guy that really gets it going was uh, Ruli again, who for about the 10th time over the three legs uh, chops down Jimmy Johnston. And that's when Celtic just absolutely lose it. You have uh, John Clark um, running, running across, kind of putting up, putting up his jukes like a, like a bare-knuckle boxer. Yeah. Um, you have riot police coming on the pitch. And, and it all, yeah. And it all just fell apart from there. Although, and Clark, funny enough, wasn't sent off uh, the referee Osorio, the Paraguayan. Um, he actually sent off Bobby Lennox in a, in a case of mistaken identity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Celtic weren't innocent. I mean, that you could, Jonathan, you can find you know clips of this game, quite grainy footage and so on, of Celtic players putting in their fair share of of, of kicks and and. And you know, choice uh, uh, actions, if you like, and, and and so on. I mean, reportedly, you know, Tommy Gemmell booted one of the Racing players in in the balls. You know, which oh, it's not the reportedly. There's footage of it. You can see it. He, yeah, well, he, yeah. <laughs> it's Machio. He kicks. I mean, he says Machio spat on him, uh, which I mean, who who knows? Um, but and Machio, fantastic footballer he was. He he could look after himself. I mean, he he played mm. for Italy in the Battle of Santiago in '62. Uh, you know, he was one of the Oriundi who went over to Italy, and although he was Argentinian, uh, he ended up playing for the Italy national team. So, I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that, that the allegation of spitting is true, but I can completely imagine he'd have wound people up and put in tackles. And um, but yeah, Gemmel gets away with it completely. He's just sort of on the blind side of the referee, and is this sort of <laughs> the great thing about it is he runs up to him, kicks him as he puts it in the ghoulies. And then this little Scott like <laughs> run away to kind of to, to get out get out of you know, referee's eye line as he turns around to see why why Machio's collapsing on the ground. But Machio <laughs> really seems to hold no no ill will against him. He just sort of seems to find the whole thing hilarious. This is just what football is. So yeah, this this incident three minutes before half time, you end up with with Basile and uh, Lennox being sent off. Um, but yeah, Lennox goes off. Jockstein tries to push him back on. <laughs> the referee sends him off again. Jockstein sends him back on. Referee sends him off again, and this time a riot policeman with a sword, like a drawn sword, yeah, make yeah. sure he doesn't go back on. <laughs> I mean, it's it's for I mean, the, the, this is the thing. Like, it, it's such a hard sort of thing to get your head around because, you, again, I think you know, Jonathan. I think you said earlier that when you get the the European sort of footballing culture and the South American footballing culture and when they clash like this it is an almighty clash because if you look at the statistics Celtic had four players sent off in that game to Racing's two we've just talked about um, uh, uh, Gemmel getting away with booting uh, one of the players in the bollocks I'm sure there were other off the off well not off off ball incidents no pun intended um, that players should have been sent off with for and, and so on and so forth so this idea that you know Celtic were the victims and, and Racing were the aggressors might be a bit of a disservice uh, to to Racing. However, you know when you look at the the, the matches in this uh, you know in subsequent intercontinental ties, I think you mentioned Manchester United and the Studiantes at the start, Daniel. 
and then Estudiantes against AC Milan and so on, where you know one of Milan's players was knocked unconscious and so on. This th- 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 this type of atmosphere, this type of violence and aggression on the pitch and off it, seemed to be more prevalent in South America than in Europe, especially when European sides well, played you, each other. It wasn't. You say that, but you know the the Nobby Styles became this sort of great bet noir for Argentinian football. That you know mm-hmm. he was seen as being the yeah the, the the sort of the face of kind of 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 the brutal English game. You look at his father, Jackie Simon, uh, of of France in the sixty six World Cup. That's as bad as anything that really does here. But mm. you know, and, and Simon broke his leg and and was put out the tournament and never fully recovered. Um, we yeah we never think about that. I I, I sort of I just don't think you're you're preconditioned to see certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, yeah, temperatures have been ramped up by what happened a year earlier. Um, but then, yeah, J- uh, Jimmy Johnson gets sent off three minutes after half time, and it is one of those things of kind of well, okay, technically it is a red card, or it's not. Sorry, not a red card. Not no says it is a sending off. But given the beating he'd taken over two and a half games, the fact he gets sent off because as somebody holds his shirt, he swings around and sort of flaps a hand at him. That was really again, I think, wasn't it? Is is yeah? You can see why he'd feel aggrieved. He has technically committed a sending off offence because he has sort of given Rudy a clip around the back of the head. But his shirt's been held and he's been kicked to shit for two and a half matches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think if if anyone on the Celtic team did have legitimate cause for uh, for complaint, it would be it would be Johnston. I believe it was um, Oscar Martin who got elbowed. Um, oh, sorry, okay. Rolling. Um, it was yeah, and the the episode itself, as as John says, it's it's not the worst elbow you're going to see, uh, probably even in that match. Um, but it was completely unprovoked. He had Martin kind of tugging on his on his jersey, um, just trying to slow him down. And and this, this is a guy who who played fantastically in the foot in the second game in Avellaneda, but by the time he got to Montevideo with everything that happened. Uh, you just felt he wanted to be out out of it, and and that was quite an expedient way of um, of getting an early buff, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So Racing would go on to win one nil. I mean, there were incidents from before the game right up until well after the game as well. How was the victory uh, treated in Argentina, uh, Daniel? Was that uh, was it seen as, as a great win for kind of? South America, or, or was it a bit more local than that? A great win for Argentina. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you could you could generalise to the um, to the whole of South America, uh, but for Argentina, definitely it was something that that kind of transcended club loyalties, club rivalries. And uh, I've heard kind of testimony from from Independiente fans. Independiente, of course, being Racing's great rivals, their stadiums three blocks away, and and they'd already had. A couple of attempts at winning the Intercontinental Cup. They lost in in consecutive years, 64-65, uh, against Elenio Arreda's uh, famous interside. And mm-hmm. what they said to me, what they said to me back then is that a lot of them, a lot of guys who were Independiente fans, they would also, you know, they turned out to um, to welcome Racing back on on the boat from Montevideo. They they cheered for them. I think the the following game. Racing received a, a guard of honor and, and a standing ovation um, on the red side of Avicenera, which if you have any kind of knowledge of this rivalry today, you think, what? That, that just couldn't yeah. happen. That's, that's impossible because it's such 
kind of a keenly felt local and and yeah, often violent rivalry. Uh, Racing were the first Argentine team to be crowned world champions, uh, as they called themselves. Um, um, that game is still very fondly remembered. Every now and then, you have a lot of um, of retrospectives on it on on Argentine television. They they will cut us out every year. Um, on, I think it's a fourth of November, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, to, yeah. To give his uh, reminiscences of the game, um, and I think that that uh, that match as well took on special importance for for Racing because what followed it was kind of thirty-four years without a league title, twenty odd years without a a continental title until they won the Supercopa Sudamericana in the eighties. Um, but on a general level, um, I must say I was I was reading um, John's John's work uh, inverting the pyramids um, prior to recording, and and you mentioned um, the influence of of politics, which I think is absolutely valid. Um, the year before uh, Racing uh, won the Intercontinental Cup, there was a military coup in Argentina. This uh, general Onganía took over very kind of sinister character who looked to quash dissent in the universities and kind of had no no qualms about kind of putting his putting a hard line down against against dissenters. But he was also a guy who um who placed a great deal on of importance on sport and and kind of the prestige it would give to to Argentina abroad. Uh, so all of the teams that that didn't Managed these kind of continental, international triumphs. Racing in '67, Estudiantes in '68. They were, they were very much um, given a hero's welcome and and presented as kind of national national icons because it was um, it was politically useful as well, right? Yeah, and I, I, mean, I think uh, when you have a military government, it's not it's not universally true, but I think that sort of legitimizes cynicism it sort of says the ends justifies the means and i think you see that across history that certainly happened with italy in the 1930s um that there's a sense that what matters is not how you win but but winning that 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 somehow that you know that that moral pragmatism takes over but i I think as well you know the, the the way that it was celebrated um, I don't know if you feel this when you see Cardenas every year, but it's kind of, I, you know, I, I, I'm not suggesting he regrets it, but he was 19 at the time and he scored, it's a brilliant goal. You know, he's 30 yards out, 25, 25 yards out, smashes a shot in the top corner. It, it makes his club the world champions and he's 19. And you just think maybe, maybe you can do that too early in your life. And I, this sort of, I, I got this great sense of weariness off him that he was, he was telling the same old story. I mean, I met, it must have been what 2011, 2012 when I when I interviewed him. Um, so for what's that for forty five years, hmm. he'd been asked about this this one goal, and he 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 works now. I mean, he might not now. He's what seventy five now. But when I interviewed him, he he was he runs a very small real estate office in in Floresta, which is a pretty ordinary barrio of, of Buenos Aires. And you go, you, know, you go in, and there's this very basic office, and there's one desk, and there's a little sad pot plant, 
and then he's in the back office. So it's just a two-room office. And facing his desk, there's three three pictures on the wall. So there's a painting of him scoring the goal. There's a diagram from El Grafico of the goal that's been you know, framed. And then the, the, the saddest thing, and I, I did sort of get this, this sort of this sense of melancholy off it, uh, was this is like a double page spread. There's, you have a center pages from uh, Tiempo magazine, which is sort of a, an Argentinian current affairs magazine of the 60s. And it was Tiempo's People of the Year 1967. And there was, I don't know, maybe 20 people on there. And slap in the middle is Cardenas with Neta Massa, who has uh, become the first Argentinian to win a, a global beauty contest. So, so he's in his he's in his wrestling kit. She's in this sort of pale blue, very 60s swimsuit. And on the other side of him is this sort of burlesque comedian called Neumann, I can't think of his first name, dressed as an angel. And it's just such a weird, of its time picture. <laughs> and it's it's, a, it's very starkly shot. Uh, you know, it's just a, a studio with these 20 people lined up. And you think every day he sits at his desk and mm-hmm. he looks up and he thinks, look what I used to be, look what I did in 1967. And nothing he's done since has come close. He only, he only ever played five times for Argentina. He never won another title in his career. At nineteen, he'd done it all. And I, I yeah, there's, there, there was I, I sort of felt there's this sort of great melancholy about him that that he'd, his whole life had been slowly downhill from then. Mind you, Jonathan, it's better to have loved and lost, than <laughs> loved all, well, as they say. If, if you're saying to me now, would you like to have scored a winning goal in the Continental <laughs> Cup final at the age of nineteen or not? I'd yeah, still say yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think it's it's hard to generalise. Obviously, um, Django is known for that moment, um, and he gets carted out every year. As I say, to to talk about it, he he carried on for a few years in Racing, but that was kind of that was kind of the peak of uh, of that Racing club, that Racing team. Um, the same year they they lost the title, the the national title to to Estudiantes, who who in this kind of weird new format. The uh, the Argentine Liga come through, finished second to them in a group stage, and then just bullied them out of of the eventual final and won three nil. Um, the following year, I think as well uh, in the Copa Libertadores, uh, Racing went out at the the semi finals. They couldn't quite get there, and and on their account, on their um, from their point of view, that's where the success just stopped. It, it dried up, but. But then you can say, you know, for every for every Chango Cárdenas, you've got guys like um, Agustín Cejas, who was was also very young um, at the time of the Intercontinental Cup. He was only 22, and he went on, you know, to, to play for Pelé Santos. He went on to to play for for the for the Argentine national team. Uh, had a glittering career. He's considered by many as as kind of as on the podium of of Argentine Argentina's greatest goalkeepers alongside Amadeo Carrizo and and Ovaldo Filiol, um, uh, Basile, of course, um, he was um, he was quite a young lad as well at the time, and he went on to have a fine career as as player and and as a coach. Uh, Roberto Perfumo, um, he just uh, turned twenty five. He was getting to his peak, and and now again he's. Um, He's considered one of the, the greatest Argentine defenders of, of all time. So so there was huge quality in that team um, and an enduring quality. I think they were 
just a little unlucky that this this fantastic side, um, the coach Jose Pizutiad, I put together the equipo de Jose, kind of started breaking up. I mean, so much I think in that team depended on Mascio, and and he was already kind of uh, in his Indian summer, let's say. Uh, so it was the pinnacle, and and the decline, you know, as we say, was. It wasn't immediate. They they came second in the league, I think, in '68. They had a pretty decent um, uh, title run as well. And in the Libertadores, they came close. But um, when the titles dried up, there was just this decline. And by the '70s, you know, Racing mm. were were a shadow of the team they they were before. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Daniel. It's been fascinating talking to you about. Uh, this fixture uh, from the history of football. I mean, I implore anybody to uh, to go and check out more of it because, you know, no matter how much uh, you spoke there, Daniel and Jonathan, in depth about it, there's still a bit more uh, to, to, to see. There's there's more kicks, there's more punches, there's more spitting, there's more controversy and so on and so forth. So so do check it out. But for more stories like that, do go to the theblizzard.co.uk. Um, but Daniel, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Um, No, not at all. Um, Jonathan and I will be back next week with another great game from the history of football. Till then, have a good one.